0: Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview, or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. So I've got a a short message that I've prepared for today. in anticipation that, you know, that Royal Family Kids thing would go as well as it did. So uh, I want to tell you about something that happened to me this week, though. I, I was playing basketball, as I, as I do from time to time, and um, actually we play on Monday and Friday mornings, if any of you are looking for a game, over at Cowiman at, at 545, and uh, my good friend Jacob Thompson was there. He's a bit of an athlete. He's pretty tall. Uh, He was visiting. He's he's serving our country uh, down in Texas, right in Texas, but home this weekend so so he came so he doesn't come all the time and and uh, You know how when changes happen and you witness it happening day by day how? uh, You maybe don't notice those changes But when you've been away for a while and you come back then you notice how big that change was and so at one point I'm I'm guarding Jacob, and he scored a bucket, and he felt some need to explain why, I don't know, why he scored a bucket, and he he made a statement that uh, James didn't jump as high as I thought he would, and I was like, wait, 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 stop, what? And this is the story of my life now, right? I don't jump as high as I think I do either, every time, every time I jump, it's not how I thought it would go, and... And this really, I mean, not just, you know, a a commentary on the aging of a a man approaching middle age, but it's kind of a use it or lose it principle. I mean, jumping is a bit of a risky venture because you have to land after you jump, and that becomes increasingly dangerous with age. And so I don't jump as much as I used to do, and when you don't jump as much as you used to, you you lose that ability. One of my all-time heroes, a, a woman named Sharon Dennis, she's... She turned 80 this year. I'm 40. She's 80. Uh, We do uh, volunteer chaplaincy together at a drug treatment center up in Castle Rock. And and we go up there, and people ask me if she's my mom. And I say, she's too old to be my mom. And I laugh, and and she (laughs) she punches me, and that's that. But anyhow, she's one of my heroes uh, for many reasons, because she's a saint, but also because uh, she and her husband, Pat, have a a custom-built house out in in a Kathlamet, and they built their bedroom upstairs, up a, a circular staircase, and the only thing up there is their bedroom, and so every day, these two people who are now in their 80s, Pat's a few years older than her, ascend a winding staircase, and she's like, people try to tell her, her daughter's a doctor, try to tell her, maybe you should, you know, put a bed on the main floor, and it's like, no, I am climbing those stairs every day, because I want to be able to to climb those stairs. So use it or lose it. Uh, I think today is, is one of those times when those physical principles of using it or losing it or training are, are really applicable uh, on a spiritual level. Uh, all, all the time at the beginning of the year, I know for myself, I reflect on the last year, I reflect on my diminished vertical leaping ability, and I think to myself, this is the year. This is the year when I'm going to get into a training regimen, and I'm going to get fit, and, and all of those things. And so often, as is so often the case in our, in our world, our physical needs, our physical awarenesses supersede those spiritual needs and those spiritual awarenesses. And although it might be a little bit canned to use a sports analogy or a fitness analogy for your spiritual life, I want to remind you that Paul did that very thing in First Corinthians chapter 9. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? So run in such a way as to get the prize. Anyone who competes in the games goes into strict training, and they do this to get a crown that will not last, but we do what we do to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I don't run like someone running aimlessly and I don't fight like a boxer who's beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Rest assured, Paul is not talking about literal self-flagellation. He is talking about spiritual discipline. These claims that he makes about uh, training, strict training like an athlete are, are made in the context of his remarks about him laying down his rights as an apostle. See, when Paul had been in the city of Corinth ministering, he had uh, done all of his work as a volunteer, sort of like a royal family kids director. He didn't take any kind of salary, he didn't take any kind of offering. Everything that he did was as a volunteer, and then he worked a side job or a full-time job to support himself. Paul had made a choice in his ministry not to take a wife because he felt the burden of being a missionary and an evangelist wasn't the sort of thing that was fair to drag a wife along through. And and we can infer from his writings that Paul often received criticism from other preachers and other apostles saying, he's a little bit less than because, he's, hey, he doesn't have a wife. He doesn't know what it's like to live. Or, hey, he's not a professional apostle. No one's paying his wages and, and, be, and he would get criticism for those things. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he turns that criticism on its head by making this all about his election to lay down his rights for the sake of the gospel so that he can be weak for the weak. He can be all things to all men. He can lay down his own rights. He can lay down his preferences for the sake and the growth of the kingdom. And it's as if he's saying to them, these choices that I've made, where I take another job, so I don't need the ministry to pay me, or I don't have a wife, or I'm traveling. He says, These choices I've made, they're all part of my spiritual fitness routine. This is all part of my fitness routine. It keeps me strong, it keeps me sharp, it keeps me humble, keeps me, you know, jumping buildings in a single bound. And I want to talk today about a spiritual discipline that. I I think in some ways, Paul would have barely even had on his radar as a discipline that needed to be talked about. I think he would have just taken it for granted that any follower of Jesus would be doing this. In fact, he only mentions it a handful of times in his writings, and that's the discipline of studying the scriptures. I would like to encourage you this year to make this an important part of your spiritual discipline, studying the scriptures. And now I have for you a real rarity here. I have a three-point sermon on studying the scriptures. We need to be reading the scriptures in community. Point number one: a big point. We need to read the scriptures in community because we are incapable of understanding and learning from them on our own. Now, before you get upset, listen to point number one. Point number one: first thing you're first bit of community you're supposed to read in. Read scripture in community with the Holy Spirit. Read scripture in communion with the Holy Spirit. Jesus describes to his disciples how in his absence, the Holy Spirit is going to be playing the role of comforter and and teacher. Uh, First John chapter two, the apostle writes to the believers uh, saying that they have this presence of the Holy Spirit with them that teaches them. We need to read in communion with the Holy Spirit because our minds are so far removed from the mind of God. Our reading of Scripture needs to be an exercise in connecting with God's Spirit in a meaningful way and seeking out His insight into what we're reading. We need to read in community with the Holy Spirit. We also need to read in community with the experts. If experts is a term that maybe offends your pride a little bit, we'll say we need to read in community with the witness of history. This is something that we have to understand. The authors and the scribes who preserved the Hebrew Scriptures for us, their baseline of understanding the Scriptures was based on a principle of memorization. Meaning that the people who felt qualified to interpret Scripture, the people who felt qualified to copy Scripture, were all people who had committed the entire thing to memory. I'm not talking about getting your dozen monthly Bible verse memory verses in. I'm talking about people who had this thing memorized, who were crazy familiar with it. The people who felt qualified to teach on it were people who had it memorized. And so I stand before you today, admittedly unqualified to do any of this. We're talking about a totally different viewpoint of what it means to understand the recorded scriptures. I think we can just acknowledge that, be like, yeah, I might need a little bit of help understanding this thing that I, I promise you I'll never memorize it. I, I'll never will, cover to cover, not gonna happen. We also need to, because the original language is foreign to us. First John chapter two, the word that I mentioned in First John chapter two and said that I called it the presence of the Holy Spirit with us, it's actually a, a word that's often translated as uh, the anointing, because you have the anointing with you. It's a Greek word, chrisma. And, and how do we get from anointing or chrisma to me saying it's the presence of the Holy Spirit? Well, at risk of boring you, the Greek word chrisma is also used in the Greek copy of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. Greeks took over the world. The Hebrews translated the Old Testament into Greek. And that was the version that most of the New Testament is quoting more often than not is the Greek version of the New Testament. This is the version that Paul quotes more often than not. And so uh, the Greek word "chrisma" is the Greek word chosen for the Hebrew word that was used to describe the anointing somebody with oil. So in the Old Testament law, God's telling Moses, this is how you anoint a priest for service. And the Greek word chrisma is inserted in there in the, in the Septuagint, the Greek copy of the Old Testament. They talk about God tells one of the prophets to pour some oil over a new king or pour some oil over a new prophet. And all of this is meant to symbolize God's spirit coming and residing with that person. And the Greek word chrisma is what is used to describe that. So John, when he's writing his first epistle... Someone who's likely using the Greek Old Testament is wanting to make a point by choosing this one word. In fact, it's the only time the word shows up in the New Testament. John's trying to point out in a world where they don't have superscript numbers or, or links to different things. He's trying to link this word to an important principle that you're supposed to have memorized. <laughs> and so he uses this word saying the Holy Spirit is with you just like the Holy Spirit was with the, the priest serving in the temple before. The believer in Christ is meant to be anointed with the Holy Spirit, just like the priest was anointed to serve in the holy place. The believer in Christ is meant to be anointed with the Holy Spirit, just like the king was anointed with oil and set apart by God to serve as a king. Or a prophet was anointed and set apart to serve. Of course, the New Testament teaches us that we are a kingdom of priests. And God has, uh, in Christ, shared with us the ability to reign with him forever and ever. So John's trying to make a point to us that this is who we are. But you don't find that in the English. And you don't find that by yourself. Everything I just said didn't come up with any of it on my own. Had to lean into the experts or the witnesses of history to gain that kind of understanding. This is just pointing out that sometimes there's some really important themes in Scripture that disappear with our modern language and culture. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking about the creation story. And in Genesis chapter 1, we have the rock, or the Spirit of God, translated Spirit of God, hovering over the waters at the beginning of creation. We have God there in creation. Genesis chapter 2, we have the rock, or the breath of God, being breathed into humanity. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the ruach that's translated as the cool of the day in our English versions. So we think of those things differently. We think of God as present in the creation story before anything's been spoken into existence. And then we think of God as with humanity, breathing the breath of life into him. And then we think of God as somehow absent in the moment that Adam and Eve fell. And yet that's not the Hebrew understanding of this. Through this word, using the same word each and every time, the Hebrews are thinking of God as present every time they see the wind blow. They're thinking of God as present every time somebody exhales a breath. That was a gift from God. That was a gift from God. Their language has structured them to see God as present in all things, even in humanity's fall. Here's God showing up. I think that we need the experts because we just don't think of things that way. If we did, we would have translated it differently, right? But the translators are scrambling, trying to say, well, here's that word again. I know it doesn't mean God's presence. What could it mean now? I think we'll say it's the cool of the day. And it's like, why would you even think that? Why wouldn't you just be like, and then God's ship spirit showed up. They heard the sound of God's spirit walking in the trees in the in it's, that's how it should have been said, but we think differently. And so we need the experts to help us break out of our cultural assumptions, to shake us out of our language barriers, so that we can truly connect with Scripture and understand what it's meant to teach us. This is the problem with today, though. We live in an age where our access to the wisdom of the ages is is at an unparalleled level. I mean, you can find this stuff faster and in much larger quantities than you ever could have before. I think, I, I just feel for those poor pastors, you know, at the mid 20th century who had to have entire libraries of books and then had to l- spend hours looking through them, trying to sort stuff out. And I'm just like, click, 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 click. Oh, that's cool, click. I mean, it's ridiculously easy. The information is out there everywhere. The scriptures are out there everywhere. I've got, I think I have five print Bibles if I, that I can think of right now. Five print Bibles. I, I'm, I'm picturing them. I'm picturing where they are. I've got five print Bibles. Who should have that many? I know, it's unfair. It's like a kid not finishing their peas or something. There's people in the world who don't have one. And I've got five. I've got three digital copies of Bibles on like e-reader versions, right? And then I have unlimited access to scripture on my phone or a computer or anything like that. I wonder how differently would your scripture reading look if the only copy you had, the only access you had to it represented something that someone had risked their life for. You know, a Bible that had been smuggled into a country or, or something that if you had and you were found with it, if someone found you with that Bible, you would be toast. How different would it look? How, much, how different would your mindset be when you sat down to read it, right? You wouldn't be like, oh, man, i gotta, I got to leave for work in three minutes. All right, put right, I'm going to thumb through this while I'm eating my toast really fast. Like, no you'd probably have like a secret place in your house that you had dedicated this, where you would go and sit and hide and read it. It would be treasured to you. And this is the unfortunate thing, and so, and so many unfortunate things that we experience in an affluent society, things that should be treasured, things that should be enjoyed, things that should be thoroughly appreciated, just become taken for granted. And we just don't enjoy it or get as much out of it as we should. Read the scriptures in community with the wisdom of history or the experts. Last one. Read the scriptures with each other. This is super important because as ignorant as I am, as ignorant as all of us are to maybe some of the headier things in scripture, each one of us has the spirit of God dwelling in us. Your breath is meant to be evidence of that each time you inhale and exhale. And because each of you has the Spirit of God in you, each of you has the teacher bringing revelation to you about what these scriptures mean. This is why you can turn a page and read something and suddenly your life is transformed without being aware at all of historical, cultural context or original languages or things like that. Because the Spirit speaks to you. And so we need one another. Each of you has your own unique history, things that you learned, things that happened to you, things that give you a unique perspective into what these scriptures are talking about or, or what you're saying. I still remember we used to have uh, people come up and set the table for communion. And uh, it, the, and this was in the first year we were Renewal. So this is over nine years ago. And Jesse Thomas shared a story about being thirsty uh, in the Nebraska sunlight. Working hard in Nebraska. And uh, I haven't been to Nebraska that I can recall, but I've been in the Midwest where it's pretty hot and humid. And I just remember as he's sharing this story about thirst and tying it into desire for God and the, the bread and the cup and all of that, it was like this guy knows what thirsty in summer is in a way that I don't. And and that impacted the shape of my understanding of how much I need God and how much desire is meant to be a part of that, and how much thirst is meant to be a part of that. We need each other. We need moments like that, that we share with one another, gaining from each other's uh, insights and perspectives. So uh, oh, I just found out my basketball team won their second game. We're going to the championship! Woo! Yeah, they play better when I'm not there. That's because I'm here praying for them the whole time. Um, <laughs> sorry. Oh, where were we? Oh, that's right. Shameless plug for women's Bible study, men's Bible study. All right. Um, I think we need to be intentional about connecting with each other on this level. And so um, I'm, I'm starting up a, a... Brian had talked about the women's Bible study that's getting fired up. I'm, I'm starting up a group on, on Wednesday, lunch hour. We're going to be over at the Three Rivers Mall. Uh, we're going to... Someone made a joke. We'll be the five people at the Three Rivers Mall uh, studying the scriptures <laughs> at noon on Wednesdays. We're going to be over there in the food court. I don't know if you can actually get food there. You might order it somewhere and take it with you because there might not be anything open there. Uh, um, and then I want to encourage you, if you want to study the Scripture, I mean, if someone's like, James, I want to read the Bible with you, but I have to do it at this time, I can tell you I'd, I probably will be there. Like, let me know when. Let me know what works for you. I, I just I would love to get some more small groups of people reading the Scriptures together uh, going here. Uh, Because I really feel a sense from the Lord that he wants to challenge us in this area of spiritual discipline in the coming year I was going to give you a little bit of time to share with each other, but we are short on time And uh, we are hosting a memorial service here this afternoon Uh, And so I think we'll just turn to the Lord's table if the worship team wants to come up uh, because um, Yeah, it just seems like the right time for that The scriptures teach us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he uh, sat down to supper with his disciples. And during the meal, he took the loaf of bread and he broke it. And he passed it around to his disciples. And he said, here, take this bread and eat it. This bread is my body that has been broken for you. As he's saying this to his disciples, of course, they are all Jews themselves, they're all, they have the Old Testament memorized. And bread is incredibly significant in Hebrew Jewish culture uh, because it was the bread of God that fed them for 40 years in the wilderness. Where for 40 years they're wandering around in the wilderness and there is nothing for breakfast if God doesn't set the table, set the wilderness ground with food for breakfast, the manna from heaven, the bread from God. And Jesus made a comment when he was teaching the Jews, he said, I am the bread of life that's come down from heaven to the world to give life to all men. And I think in some ways what Jesus was saying at that supper with his disciples was, I am the bread. Here's a table that is set with my body broken for you. And this is all that you need to eat and be satisfied. After supper, he passed around the cup and he said, this cup is my blood sealing a new covenant? The blood of the new covenant. When Paul writes about this covenant, he says, God is no in this covenant, God is no longer counting men's sins against him. Of course, Jesus' disciples had a firm understanding of covenant and what it meant to be God's people and be set apart by God and people who are meant to relate with him in this covenant that that governs and sets the stage for all of their relationship. And in this new covenant, God sets the, the, the stage for relationship with the sacrifice of his own life. It's as if he says to humanity who's been afraid of death since the garden, God says to them, I would rather die myself than see you unreconciled, than see you die in your sin. So I'm no longer counting your sins against you. This is the new covenant. So every week we gather at the Lord's table and we tear off a piece of the bread and we dip it in the cup and we just, we eat. We receive these truths into ourselves saying, it's enough. This is all that is needed for my salvation. It's enough. And so as we sing another song, uh, I just want to invite you to come up to the table as you have an opportunity to and tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup and receive the body and the blood of Christ is all that's needed for you this year for your salvation. It's sealed, it's settled, you're loved, you're accepted and uh, Christ has redeemed you. So Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace that's constantly at work in our world and we say yes to it today. We receive it from you. We thank you for a table that has been set with good food, good drink that is unto eternal life for us. May we be nourished by the fellowship of your spirit, by the body and the blood of Christ, and may we be empowered to go and seek your kingdom this year and this week. In Jesus' name, amen.